so our text this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And you know, the scripture reading that we do together each week, you know, sometimes it's the, it's the passage that we'll be teaching. Uh, sometimes it's a passage that correlates with the, the text itself. And so today um, we're going to see that there's uh, some crossover between Romans 6, what we read here in Romans 6, and what we're going to be speaking on here in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 17. But let me, let me just remind you that we've, we've now entered into this section of the epistle where it, it's uh, it giving us now instruction on how to, to personally live out our faith in Christ. I pointed out many times that the, the first half of the epistle, the first three chapters, uh, were really laying a doctrinal foundation. They were telling us essentially all that God has done for us in Christ. And, and never once in those three chapters was there any word of instruction so much as to how we were to respond or behave in relation to that. Um, Paul saved all of that for this moment right here. So as we came to the fourth chapter, we began to transition in. We talked about um, our walk, and we talked about the importance of walking in unity. And then as we move now uh, away from the subject of unity, in a sense, Paul's, Paul's dealt with that pretty extensively, reminding us to uh, do our best to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace uh, we're coming now to a consideration of um, our walk in regard to the area of holiness. And both of these things, unity and holiness, are a part of what Paul earlier referred to as walking worthy of the calling. But, but the term walk, Paul uses that frequently. And what he's referring to there is our conduct or behavior or our lifestyle. And here in the 17th verse, uh, beginning here in verse 17 and going all the way through the ninth verse of the sixth chapter, uh, the apostle is going to be giving us instruction on how to live the Christian life and what, what that looks like. And he's going to look at it in a variety of different contexts, just our, our personal lives, our um, lives together as believers. Our, our lives in relation to our families, our, our marriages, our children, uh, even de- dealing with um, things that would pertain to our, uh, our professions, our vocation, our workplace, things like that. So those are the things that he is going to be addressing as we go through this section. But it all begins here in... Uh, the 17th verse. But the, the way Paul approaches it is, um, first of all, from the negative and then from the positive. The Christian life is lived out in both negatives and positives. So there are certain attitudes and behaviors that we as Christians are to put off. That's the negative. So the negative uh, command is, you know, the Bible telling us things we're not to do. But then... 
On the other hand, there are the positives, and those would be uh, those attitudes and behaviors that are to mark our lives as the people of God. Paul put it this way in writing to Titus. And again, notice the order. To Titus, he said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So that's the negative. We're to, we're to no longer live a certain way. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live, here's the positive, soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so to here, Paul starts in verse 17 with the negative. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So you see, Paul starts with um, the, the negative command to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. But, but first notice, he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. When Paul says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, what he's really saying is, look, what I'm telling you right now is from the Lord. I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. When, I, when he says, I testify in the Lord, he's speaking as God's spokesman. Now, I bring that up because th- th- we, f- we find this occurring today, uh, more frequently lately, it seems to me, where people are wanting to sort of juxtapose uh, Paul and Jesus. And, um, you know, you, you might read something that Paul said, and somebody will come along and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter if Paul said it. Jesus didn't say it. So it, unless Jesus said it, then it's not binding on us. And, and with that, they dismiss much of what Paul said. But what Paul said is what Jesus said. Just like what Moses said is what Jesus said, or just like what Isaiah said, Jesus said. We believe that all scripture is given by God. And so whether it's Jesus speaking or Paul speaking or Moses speaking or Isaiah speaking or Peter speaking, it's all the word of the Lord. So we can't be thinking that, well, just because Jesus didn't say it specifically, it's not applicable, not binding, or it's not true. If the apostles said it, it's as good as if Jesus said it. Peter understood that. Peter referred to Paul's writings as scripture. And for the apostles, scripture meant that authoritative word from God. So so Paul now, as he's going to go into this instruction on how to live, he's basically saying, this is God's word to you on these issues. So no longer walking as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, here Paul is generalizing 
you could certainly find a Gentile here and there that was not behaving exactly the way he describes here. But in a general sense, this is the way the world was in Paul's day. And it's also the way uh, the world is in our day. And, and look at how he breaks it down. They're walking, he says, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, and then who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So notice, they're walking in the futility of their mind. That means they're, they're walking in... Um, according to a mind that is void of the truth of God. Boy, that's a description of our culture today. It's becoming increasingly like that. But that's exactly how it was in Paul's day as well. Paul says to his uh, audience here that many of them used to behave the same way. And of course, many of us today could say the same thing. We behave the same way as well. We walked in the futility of our mind. We lived... Uh, according to our own thinking processes that were void of the truth of God. But notice, this is the, the end result of something that began much earlier. And look how it began. If you just look at this process, but go now the other direction, it starts with the blindness of the heart. The blindness of the heart or the hardness of the heart which leads then to an ignorance, but it's a willful ignorance, which then results in an alienation from the life of God, which then brings uh, a darkening to the, the human understanding. And then finally, you come to this place of, of the futility of the mind. You know, this is really a description of humanism. Humanism is the unaided mind, the unassisted mind, uh, man left to himself. But you see, what the humanist doesn't want to acknowledge is that men are sinful. And so if you're left to yourself, if you're left without uh, the assistance of God's truth, then you're left to a sinful mind, a corrupt mind. And it's interesting because every society that embraces this idea that human reason, that's what humanism is. It's the idea that human reason is adequate, it's sufficient. We don't need any outside Information. We don't need any outside revelation coming to us. In other words, we don't need God to speak to us to tell us how to live. We can figure that out on our own. You know, we're not doing that good of a job, really. <laughs> and, and every single culture that has thought that and adopted that humanistic mentality has in the long term self-destructed. That's where it always leads. You know, there's a similar process really described in Romans chapter one. If you look at Romans chapter one and compare it with Ephesians four, they're very similar. Let me refresh your memory on Romans chapter one. It starts with this. They did not glorify God as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, birds, beasts, four-footed uh, animals, creeping things, and so forth. But then it goes on to say, therefore, God gave them up to vile passions. It's the same thing here. It's the same kind of process. And wherever you find this 
this, uh, whether it's in an individual person or whether it's in a collective a society, wherever you find this mentality that human reason is sufficient and we do not need the intervention of God, you always find in the end that the society self-destructs. And that's, that's the road that we are on. You know, from uh, the standpoint of Bible prophecy back in, you know, whatever, the 80s or even further back than that, people would always wonder, well, why isn't America in Bible prophecy? And well, you know, what's going to happen to the United States? And occasionally somebody would say, well, we're going to self-destruct. We don't need anybody really to overcome us or destroy us. We'll just... And, and oftentimes the comparison has been between uh, America and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire self-destructed because of these same kinds of uh, mentalities. And that's pretty much what's happening to us today, isn't it? But it's because of this, this uh, mind that refuses to submit to God and comes to this place, uh, Paul describes here, of being past feeling. No conscious Conscience, no shame, no mercy, no compassion, no love, no conviction. And it leads ultimately to lewdness. It leads to lust. It leads to uncleanness. It leads to just the inability to be uh, satisfied by any of these things. It's pretty much a description of our culture. So this is how many of the Ephesians used to live. This is how many of us used to live and Paul says we are no longer to live like that. See, the gospel makes a change. The gospel comes and takes us from this place of walking according to the futility of our minds and brings us into a whole new understanding of life and reality through the truth of God. And so there, there's absolutely going to be a change. Now, there, occasionally you hear people uh, suggesting that um, it doesn't really matter if there's any change in your life as long as you, you know, believe a certain few things and uh, that's all that it takes. But that's not what the Bible says. Paul says we're no longer to walk. There is to be a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. If you have become a Christian at a certain point, there's going to be outward evidence that that has taken place. It's not, it's not good enough to just simply have a verbal testimony. Yes, I received Christ. There has to be something in your life to show that. You're no longer engaged in the things that you were engaged in. I know that happened to me. I know that happened to many of you as well. Before I knew Christ, I lived a certain way. The, when I met Christ, I understood intuitively by the Spirit, and then, of course, because of the influence of God's Word, I understood I'm not to live this way anymore. And through the grace of God and the power of God, God enables us then to live according to the way He wants us to live. And so Paul then makes reference here to uh, having learned from Christ. And he starts again with the negative. You have not so learned Christ. So in other words, what he's saying is Christ did not teach them that they could remain in their former sinful lifestyles. Now, evidently, some of the Ephesians were thinking that that was okay. That's why Paul is addressing it. And the same is true today. 
Beware of those today who say, as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't really matter how you live, just as long as you're a loving person. Now, I'm hearing this more and more today than I think I've ever heard it before. Now, I am all for the love of God. And those of you that listen to me preach regularly, you know I'm, I'm emphasizing the love of God, the grace of God, and that's where I'm firmly rooted in my own personal life, and that's where I want us to be, and I think that's the, the place the Bible wants us to be. But never, when, when we're emphasizing the love of God, are we at all suggesting that that means we just have a free-for-all and do what we want because God loves us. Yeah, God loves us, absolutely. And he's proved it in many ways, uh, primarily by sending his son to die for us. But he came to die for us to do something, to set us free from sin. God loves us, yes. He knows, he knows that sin destroys us. So he's determined to set us free from sin. But there are those today who uh, I am hearing more often who would suggest that you know, it's, it's okay to go on in sin. It doesn't matter because God loves you unconditionally, regardless of anything. And for them, that means just keep doing what you're doing and don't worry about it. I, I often hear people say, well, hey, look at Jesus. Well, let me just tell you a quick story. Um, a few months back, uh, there, somebody uh, came out, uh, a Christian came out and announced publicly that they uh, were gay and they were embracing that, that, that lifestyle. That's who they were. And they know God loves them. And that's all that really matters. And Christianity has been wrong on this subject for a long time. And so now they're just, you know, they're, they're just proud to make the announcement. And with the announcement then came a lot of other Christians chiming in, affirming, amen, God bless you, God loves you, you're right, that's great, be yourself. All that really matters is that you, know, you, you fulfill who you are because that's, that's what God's love intends for you and all of this. And, and actually, um, as I was watching this unfold, um, a person, a friend of mine was, was chiming in with that kind of affirmation. And so I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta interrupt this thing here. I gotta, I gotta throw in a, um, a word or two. So, so I did. So I said, okay, so wait a second. Now, are are we saying that homosexuality is no longer sin? Is is that what you're saying? And then the person and I had a conversation, and uh, the conversation kind of went like this. Well, no, I, you know, I, I understand that kind of, but you know, I feel like God's called me to minister in that community. And, and I just wanted to affirm them and love them and let them know that God loves them. And, um, and after all, I'm just doing what Jesus did because Jesus just loved the sinners. Okay, Jesus loved the sinners. Yes, he did. And oftentimes we hear today, well, you know, Jesus, he hung out with the prostitutes and he hung out with the drunkards and he hung out with these people and he, he shunned the religious people. Well, what do we mean when we say Jesus hung out with them? Was he partying with them? Was he drinking and getting drunk? Was he uh, engaging in the lewd activities? Of course he wasn't. And it's, it's really, to say that he hung out with them is, 
is probably the wrong way to communicate it. Jesus certainly went to them, and he certainly reached out to them, and he certainly showed them that the love of God was greater than their sin, but Jesus's objective always was to bring them out of that. And in all of the cases that people often point to, they only tell part of the story. Yes, Jesus comes along. And yes, he immediately forgives the woman who's taken in adultery. But when it's all said and done, he says, go and sin no more. And he immediately uh, forgives the man who was uh, afflicted physically because of his sin. And he forgives him. He heals him. But at the end, what does he say? He says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So we have to think properly about this. Jesus welcomes sinners. Absolutely. He was gracious with sinners. Absolutely. We are sinners. We need to be that way toward each other. But his objective, both then and now, is to bring people out of their sin not to affirm them in their sin. So that's the mistake that is made. We have not so learned Christ. Christ did not come to teach us, stay in your sin, don't worry about it, it's all good, God loves you. That, that's not the message. God loves us, and as some have said, I don't know who originated this uh, little word, but it's right. He loves you so much that he will not let you stay the way you are. He loves you so much that he's absolutely committed to changing you for the better. He's going to do it. That's what he does. So we, we did not learn from Christ. This is what Paul's saying. You didn't learn from Christ that you could go on living in your sin. What did we learn from Christ? Well, he's going to tell us in a moment what we did learn from Christ. And we'll look at that when we come to verse 22. But let me just take a little bit of a diversion here. Um, The terms that Paul uses, learned Christ, heard him, been taught by him. These are important things to consider. John Stott said, these are remarkable expressions. They evoke the image of a school. They evoke the image of a school. Now, Jesus was um, recognized as a rabbi in his day. A disciple is a person who followed a teacher. In the Jewish case, it would have been a rabbi. So they followed the rabbi. They followed the teaching of the rabbi. They followed the example of the rabbi. In the Greek culture, it would have been a philosopher. But the whole point is you were a disciple of a person so you could learn from them You could imitate them. You could take on board their understanding of of life and so forth. So as Christians, Jesus is our rabbi, so to speak. He's our teacher. He's the one who is instructing us. But the interesting thing is that he is the uh, essence of what we are being taught as well. He is the substance of Christian teaching. Paul did not link Christian belief and behavior to a creed or a code. And this is important to understand. He linked them to Christ. He did not link them to a precept or a principle, but he linked them to a person. You see, here's what's happened 
And here's what occasionally happens still in the church. The person of Jesus gets put in the background and principles and precepts get put in the foreground. So you end up, that, that's how this thing turns into a religion. We often say, and rightfully so, if we know our Bibles, we're not about religion, we're about a relationship. But the minute you lose sight of Jesus, you suddenly drift into the realm of religion. And it starts to become about um, these precepts and principles. It starts to become about um, you know, a list of things tacked up on the wall that you look at and that you say, you know, this is what I've got to do. This is what I've got to aspire to be. That's not Christianity. That's religion. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, cultivating the relationship with the person that then results in those principles and those truths being worked out in our lives because he's our teacher. He's the substance of what is being taught. And he's actually the the atmosphere and environment that it all transpires in. So we've got to keep that as the, the focus. We've got to keep Christ as the focus. The truth, Paul goes on here and he says, notice, he says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Know this today, the truth in Jesus is the greatest thing a person can ever study or learn. You know, sometimes we feel, I think, as Christians, sometimes we feel embarrassed. Sometimes we feel inferior because after all, you know, we just know about Jesus. We don't know necessarily about all of these other things. But to know the truth in Jesus is to know infinitely more than the wisest man who rejects him. Never be ashamed. Never be embarrassed that you only know Jesus. <laughs> only know Jesus. He's, he's all there is to know in the end. Because all this other stuff is going to vanish. He's the creator. And so whether it's psychology or sociology or history or physics or, you know, all the things that people, well, this is the important stuff and we've got to know all of this. And I'm not putting down knowing that, but all of that really pales in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul certainly understood that to be the case. All the things that he knew, he said that he counted those things as worthless in comparison to the... um, unsurpassable excellence of knowing Christ. And that is certainly the attitude that we should have as well. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, one of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in itself. And it's so true. It's so true. Christians are often portrayed in society as being dummies. You know, people who check their brain at the door. But you know, some of the most brilliant people in the world today are believers. Christianity is an education in itself, and it gives you the the best education possible in comparison to all other things. Think about it. It's an education on the origin of life. If you don't know where you came from, it's going to be hard to figure out anything else. If you, can't, if you can't start at the right point, 
how you're ever going to end at the right point, right? But it's an education on the origin of life, on the meaning of life. Where do you go today to find an education on the meaning of life? You go to a university today and you've got 20 different professors that have 20 different opinions about what the meaning of life is. It's an education on the meaning of life. It's an education on the living of life. This is the big question, really, isn't it? For anybody who's really thinking, the big question is, how do I live life? Well, this is what you learn from Christ. You learn how to live life. You also get an education on the end of life. You get an education on the end of life, that there is death, that it's a reality. How do I make preparation for it? But then you even get an education on the life to come. Wow. Where are you going to get that in a university today? All you're going to get today from the humanistic mind, all you're going to get today is coming out of the futility that is there within the mind without revelation. And the best you're going to get is uncertainty about all of these things. Disagreement. But you get complete, consistent, harmonious truth when you get these things from Christ. So you've got the best teacher and we're studying the most important subjects and He's even living in us to help us fulfill the things that we are taught to do. So now, finally, coming to our last point here, just exactly what did Christ teach us? And we're looking at it here strictly in the context of what Paul is dealing with. Christ taught us many things, but here what Paul is referring to has to do with no longer living like the rest of the Gentiles, but living this new life. What did he teach us? Verse 22, he taught that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. So what, what Paul is really talking to us about here is Christ teaching us how to live. How do we live? Years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? It was turned into a documentary film series. And, uh, but you know, looking, at, looking at the world, looking at the culture, and asking the question, how should we then live in light of these things? Well, how do we live? That's, a, that's a, an extremely important question. Jesus taught us we are to live by putting off the old man or the old self putting off the old self. The old self is a reference to who we are by nature. And so I am called to put this off. How do I do that? Well, this is where the Romans 6 passage comes into play. This is where it overlaps. Because there in Romans 6, what we were told is that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be put out of business put out of business, rendered inoperative. Our old man was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be put out of business, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. Therefore, reckon, word reckon means consider. Therefore, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. So 
That's exactly what Paul is talking about here in his word, put off the old man. You see, sinful desires, temptations, those things will still come our way, but there's something radically different for the Christian. There's something radically different for you who have put your faith in Jesus, where before those things had dominion over you because you had no power within you to resist them necessarily. I mean, you had your willpower, but there's a certain point where uh, even a man's willpower can break down. But now we have something beyond that. We have the power of Christ. So what we do is when those desires surface, when those temptations come along, when, when the, the behavioral patterns of the old person are there staring us in the face, wanting to suck us in to living that way again, we say no. The old man is crucified with Christ. I'm dead to these things. And Jesus, who teaching us, who's indwelling us, gives us the power then to do that very thing. We put those things off by refusing to give in to them. That's what he's talking about here. Putting off the old man. But then he says in the positive, putting on the new man. But before that, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, the futility of the mind that he began talking about, that leads to reckless, sinful living. But Paul is talking here about a renewing of the mind. He's talking about a reprogramming, if you will. And what's he referring to here? He's referring, I think, primarily to the influence of God's word upon us. This is what the word of God does. It renews our mind. And the amazing thing about God's word is it is simultaneously cleansing us from the the. The, um, the incorrect information that's been uh, you know, downloaded onto us throughout our lives, it's simultaneously um, uninstalling that while it's installing new information. You know, it's like a computer. I just got the iOS 8 update. Everybody is so excited about it. Downloaded it, and it had all kinds of bugs, all kinds of glitches. I couldn't do this, and I couldn't do that. And so what do you do? Well, they immediately came up with an update to fix those things. So you just download the update. And as you're downloading the update, it's correcting the problems from what was previously downloaded. And that's in a way, that's what happens with the word of God. As we are uh, subjecting ourselves to the word of God, as we are being taught by Christ, and as we are being taught of Christ, it's going in and it's, it's uh, deleting, getting rid of all of that stuff that's been put in there for so long, and it's putting in all this new information. And so then we can do what he says, put on the new man. We can put on the new man. We've got a new man to put on. How do we do it? Well, it's simple. You say no to the old and yes to the new. 
you say old, old, no to the old. You can do that because of Christ, because Christ is in you. You can do that. You can look at those old things and say no. Just like when I go into my closet, I have a bunch of clothes in there that I will never wear. I, I look at them and I say no. <laughs> I will not put on that old jacket. Sometimes Cheryl will say, why don't you wear that? No, I'm not wearing that ever again. Let's get it to goodwill as quick as we can. No, I'm going to put on the new stuff. But that's what we do with sin. We just, you know, and I know it's, it's sounding way too simple, but listen, God hasn't made it complicated. He's empowering us to do this. We say no. And here's the secret. The more you say no to sin and yes to God, you begin to develop a, a habit, a pattern. And it becomes easier and easier to say no to sin because you're saying yes to God. So when you're saying no to sin, you are saying yes to God. So you just keep saying, yes, God, yes, God. And that becomes the pattern. You know, people sometimes make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, I, I gotta, I'm, I'm waiting to, to feel like, um, you know, I, I'm waiting to, to feel like doing the right thing or, or I'm waiting till the feelings of doing the bad things go away. Don't wait for that. The Bible speaks of the evil desire. It can resurface any time. Don't wait for the, for the desire to change. Beha change the behavior, and the desire will change with the behavior change. You know, even in the, the scientific realm, what they've discovered is that behavior changes brain chemistry. You behave a certain way, it produces certain patterns in your brain, it pr produces certain chemistry, And the more you behave that way, then you just get like in a track where you, where you just do this. It's like a groove that gets carved in there. But you change your behavior, and they've discovered that with the change of behavior comes the change of chemistry as well. And physically, that's just a picture of the same thing that we're talking about here. God says, live this way. This is how you're to do it. Put off the old, put on the new, And don't worry about the desire, the feelings, or those things. Just do it, and in time, you'll find that those other things will change themselves. That's the beauty of it. But don't get caught in the trap of thinking, well, you know, I can't change the behavior until the, you know, the feelings go away or uh, until the desire changes. No. Change the behavior. God gives us the power to change the behavior. The greatest illustration of that is Jesus to the man with the withered hand. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. The whole problem with the man is he can't stretch out his hand. But Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And because Jesus said to do it, he could do it. So the Lord says to us, stop doing that. Well, Lord, that's my problem. I can't stop doing it. Well, I'm telling you to stop so you can stop because I'm going to give you the power to do it. But it's saying yes to Jesus and simultaneously saying no to that thing. So putting off the old, putting on the new. We're going to come back and look in more depth at the new man next time. But let me close with this. The old man is corrupt and beyond repair. See, this is the difference between Christianity and humanism. This is the difference between biblical Christianity and all other philosophies and religious systems. Everybody else thinks that there's some... 
um, goodness still, you know, deeply resident in the soul of man that just needs to be cultivated and developed and brought out somehow. You know, we've got tons of empirical evidence that that just isn't true, but we still refuse to believe it. The fact of the matter is the old man is corrupt and beyond repair. So God doesn't go about repairing the old man. What he does is he gives us a whole new thing. And that's what Paul says here, that you are to put on the new man, which was created according to God. God has recreated you. That's what's happened. Remember in the beginning, God created man in his image and in his likeness. We still, to some degree, bear the image and likeness of God, but it's marred. Adam had that original likeness and image. Now through Christ, that likeness and image is restored. We have been recreated according to God in righteousness and true holiness. So put off the old and put on the new. Because you, if you are believing in Christ, you are a new creation. Lord, we thank you that that is the truth. And that this great truth that's found only in Jesus is the truth that sets us free. And Lord, we are so glad, so thankful that we are not bound to a life of slavery to sin, but we have been set free by the power of Christ, that we can, through your grace, we can put off the old man and put on the new. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.